Jorge. Yeah? World Cup? Pretty crazy, huh? It's better than I thought it was going to be. So I'm, I'm really happy. There's a lot of entertaining soccer going on. Honestly, take away the first three games, it's, it's been almost perfect. I would tend to agree. Uh, and really, that's, that's the reason we're doing this podcast. Welcome, everyone, uh, to the first non-preview episode of Jorge and John Talk About Soccer. We have some games under our belt. We're going to talk about those games, look ahead to some games in the next few days before our next episode. Uh, but let's hop right into it. I'm John Block. With me, as always, is Jorge Deneve. The opening game, Russia versus Saudi Arabia. Would you say this is the worst 5-0 game you've ever seen? It, it was awful. I think I said that it was going to be a stinker last time. I didn't think it'd be this bad. I didn't think that Russia was going to play a counterattacking style against Saudi Arabia. That, that just threw me for a loop. I, I have, and maybe no one on Russia impressed me, but maybe that's because of the tactics. Cause I, I really don't understand what the manager was doing at all. I mean, on one hand it worked out for Russia. They won five nil convincingly. The problem is I feel like people are attributing that to Russia either having good tactics or good quality when I think the the real reason is just that Saudi Arabia had terrible tactics and even worse quality. Yes, I, I agree. I mean, one, if we're going to talk, if people want to say Russia's tactics are great, Cherishev didn't start, and Cherishev scored twice. So how you can have good tactics when you didn't start, who was probably your best player, I don't understand. Secondly, I mean, I'm going to talk more personnel. Smolov did probably nothing in 65 minutes up front. You bring on 6'5 Juba, who you know is going to probably outmuscle their center backs. He scores one and, and knocks down the header for Cherishev's second goal. So I, if, if they do that again against Egypt and they play the same slow trying to counterattack but have all these old people that can't actually do much and they decide to play Jagoev instead of Cherishev again, assuming Jagoev's healthy, they're going to lose. Yeah, I mean, certainly their games beyond this one won't be as easy. I mean, I would say five. the, the goal difference helps. The goal difference helps. Yeah, I mean, now they only have to play for a draw. Yeah, I mean, that Russia-Egypt game is probably going to be, we'll get to it, but that's probably going to be the most important game of Group A, I would say. But yeah, I mean, not, not a whole lot. Four or five-mil game, not a whole lot to talk about, I would say. But let's move on to the second Group A game. Uh, Egypt nil. Uruguay won. Again, obviously not as, as you know high scoring, but still a pretty boring game, I would say. Yeah, it, it was pretty bad. I mean, and I'll confess, I mean, there these games, Pacific time, it's terrible. Like, I was up, I think that was 5 a.m. So I, I actually got up for that, and I was watching it, but I was in and out of sleep, and I was, I, I did not stay awake for that one. Because it didn't excite me, and then like I, since I'm watching in Spanish, I, I hear the goal yell and I see the replay of Jimenez's header, but like it didn't excite me. It was not good. Though I would say the one good thing in this game is uh, El Shanawi, the Egyptian goalie, had an incredible save where he just barely got to uh, a Cavani free kick uh, and and was able to knock it off the post. So that's probably for me the save of the tournament so far. Ooh, I, I mean, 
We'll, we'll come to that later because I'm going to disagree. I, I'm sure you will. But, I mean, another thing with this game, I thought that the Uruguay defense, I know it was against Egypt and Egypt without Salah at that, but Jimenez and Godin looked really solid, even if against like not excellent competition. They, it seemed like every tackle they made, they made easily. And that hasn't been the case for all the you know better defenses against not as good opposition. So I was definitely impressed with them. However, the Uruguay midfield seemed like they had no creativity whatsoever playing against what was you know an Egyptian team that isn't that good but was sitting back. And so I wonder if they're going to struggle with that going forward. They might. I think that Uruguay has never been about creativity they're very much we're going to be solid we're going to be a little dirty we're going to be physical and then we're going to have good players up top to take care of that i mean in 2010 Diego forlan was incredible and could do no wrong really and then 2014 they they got out of of a tough group but they, they were gifted goals from england they scored off a set piece against um Italy, and then they lost to Colombia. So I, the, the midfield is not their strength. So it, it's a lot of it's going to come down to you know Suarez and Cavani to create their chances and then set pieces. Fair enough. And you know they they got a goal off a set piece this game. They almost had one through Cavani. So we'll see. They get, they get a, an easier game in in Saudi Arabia next. So you would you would assume that if they can beat Egypt, they can pretty easily beat Saudi Arabia. Yeah, and, and that game might help them find rhythm as well. Um, just a soft opposition to start moving the ball around and really, really catching their stride. I mean, those are the advantages of those games. But moving on to Group B for now, the first game in that group, Morocco and Iran. Uh, Iran won 1-0 through a stoppage time own goal uh, from a Moroccan defender, which is just the worst way to lose for Morocco especially when Morocco was probably the better team through, you know, 92 minutes of that game. They were. Um, they were wasteful in front of goal. But uh, I think that's kind of what happens when we don't know who your forwards are. Uh, like, I don't, I don't know anyone in Morocco that's going to consistently take chances. And they didn't in this game. And they were, they were probably better, but they couldn't defend us at peace. Again, like... Those two games were decided by a late set piece because one team didn't defend them very well. So, I mean, I don't, I don't have much to say about that game. Yeah, definitely a tough result for Morocco. Um, being in that group with Portugal and Spain, it seems like their chances are, are pretty low. Even, you know, Iran, you, you wouldn't expect to get through despite being on top of the group after the first set of matches just because of the competition. But, I mean, Morocco would really need to pull off a miracle now and at least beat one of Portugal and Spain to make it through, which seems unlikely at best. Yeah. I mean, it, it's a huge result for Iran, even if they don't move on, because they didn't win a, a game last World Cup. And I think in 2006, when they qualified, they didn't win either. So that's like that's going to be special to them, whatever they do for the rest of the tournament. They want a game. Yeah, definitely. Uh, but so three not too exciting matches to kick off the World Cup. And then things really kicked into overdrive with Portugal and Spain. Uh, a 3-3 draw that had a little bit of everything. Let's start with some of the pre-match, I don't know if controversy is the right word, but 
Spain, the Spain manager, uh, Lopetegui, hired by Real Madrid after, after the World Cup ends. Apparently, the, the head of the Spanish Soccer Federation did not like that you know, they, the Federation had sort of been skirted around in this hiring and then fired Spain's manager you know, two days before their World Cup debut, which I can you think of anything this crazy regarding a coach leading up to a World Cup? Or so close, at least? No, I can't. I think that the head of the Spanish Federation took this way too personally. I, I think it's a little bit of an insult to Lopetegui, or however we pronounce it. I, I think it's Lopetegui. I think that's how you pronounce it. But anyway, I don't see why you fire him. He's still a professional. He's going to put everything he can into this job, but he hadn't lost yet. 20 games, no losses is an impressive record. And after Spain's disaster in 2014, I think you'd want a coach that's kind of a sure thing. So I, that was weird. And maybe that kind of affected how, how Spain started the game. Because they, they were outplayed for, I'd say, the first five minutes. Yeah, definitely. They Portugal definitely came out the stronger team. The one interesting Spanish lineup decision, or maybe not decision, but because of injury, uh, Nacho started at right back instead of Danilo, or instead of uh, Carvajal, rather, and gave away a penalty to Ronaldo, I think, inside five minutes of the game. Yeah, it was it was quick. I think I could see, I think that was Ronaldo's first meaningful touch of the ball. And as soon as he got there, he did the step over. I, I remember thinking, wow, he looks good. I haven't seen him this lightly for Portugal in, well, forever. Probably not since, no, I, I think it's just ever period. But he went in, he won the penalty, he put it away. And that, that kind of set the tone because the pace was quick. And then Spain was like, well, all right, we're going to come back. And they started just knocking the ball around, and Portugal couldn't touch it. But, yeah, I, I think if Carvajal's there, Spain's a little more solid. I mean, he's a center back playing outside back. He's he's at a disadvantage there. Um, but we'll, more on him later. Ronaldo's second goal, uh, you know, decently powerful shot, but, you know, from outside the box and right to David De Gea, who just... I don't know what happened, but he, he makes a pretty big mistake and, and lets that one slide off his hands and into the back of the net. Jorge, you, you play goalie. Well, what is going on with De Gea there? I don't know. I don't know what's going on with De Gea in general because in a friendly with Switzerland, Switzerland scores because De Gea again drops a ball and Switzerland kind of tidies up the rebound. There's really no excuse for a goalkeeper of, of his level to let that ball slip through his hands. It's not quite Robert Green because Dempsey hit a P-roller to him, but it, it was pretty close. And it, you can't gift a goal to Portugal in a 1-1 game like that. So I, I have no explanation because I, I was shocked when I saw that. Would you expect him to maybe keep making mistakes as the World Cup goes on? I really don't know. I don't know what his confidence is like with Spain because there was a, a ball over the top in the 60th minute that, you know, normally you'd probably see a keeper be able to come out of his box, put his head on it, and just header it to the sideline. But he, he, as he's coming out to it, he kind of he hesitated, 
let Ronaldo get in, and then there was a clash between those two and, and Gerard Piquet, who's chasing. So I, I don't think this is just a one-off mistake for the World Cup. I think he might make more because he, he doesn't look right in goal. Yeah, definitely something to look to and to be concerned about if you're a Spanish fan going forward. But outside of, outside of De Gea, Spain looked really good for most of that match. After a shaky start, they really got themselves into it and had some really, really nice play and, and dominated a lot of possession. Yeah, they looked better than Spain, the Spain team that won the World Cup in 2010. Because people forget they didn't play particularly well. And they weren't all that incisive. But I think Diego Costa gives them a new dimension. The set-piece goal was just pretty. Um, there was a lot of good possession play. Isco pretty much doesn't ever lose the ball. I, I, I think outside of you know the three chances they gave to Ronaldo that he put away, it, it was perfect. They Portugal couldn't touch the ball. Portugal, when they got the ball, couldn't keep it. And... This is a Spain team that really can take on anybody. Yeah, and so you got those two Diego Costa goals. Uh, we talked a bit about him in the preview, how he'd, he'd fit well into the Spain side, and it certainly looks like he'll do better for the team than he did four years ago. And then Nacho, who gave away that penalty and was kind of a last-minute entry into the squad, just hit an absolutely incredible strike for Spain's third goal, probably the goal of the tournament so far, I would say at least. Absolutely. I, that technique to cut across it and get a kind of a swerve going out and then back in with the outside of your foot, it, it's stellar. And then it goes in off the post. Um, but I mean, Nacho has a history of scoring good goals. I think in the Champions League, he hit a bike for Real Madrid, which for a center back is incredible. Uh, so I wonder if Carvajal does not recover. I think Spain is very, very happy playing Nacho out there on the right if he's going to do that. And after conceding the penalty, he he looked solid. He was fine. He was good in possession. I, really, there's nothing to worry about there, even if Carvajal's not healthy. Yeah, I agree. He definitely looked very solid. That goal, it's just the kind of goal, the bend on it. I could watch it on loop and never get tired of it. It's just beautiful. Yeah, it's almost like the Roberto Carlos free kick that everyone everyone loves. It's just that when you see the player cut across the ball like that and see it swerve from from the reverse angle, it's there's nothing better really. Yeah, definitely a very exciting game, and I would say the that really kicked things into gear. A lot of the games after that continued to to have a lot of excitement. the The first game, the day after, was France versus Australia, a two one win for France. And we saw the first use of VAR this World Cup uh, when France was awarded a penalty uh, early in the game. I would say uh, correct call. Yeah, they got it right. Griezmann touches the ball, past the defender. He comes in from behind. They're able to look at the camera angle. They can see it's in the box. And then I mean, Griezmann tucks it away. Keeper didn't move. I was a little surprised at that. I don't know why Matty Ryan's just standing in the middle of his goal. But, I mean, well taken, well won. And, and VAR... I mean, it's working. There's, I've got one issue with it in one game, which we'll get to. But I would say overall it's been a success so far. Certainly in this first instance it was. And then we had another penalty. I don't know what Samuel Mtiti was doing, just 
sticking his arm wildly up in the air on a set piece. It comes off his arm. And then uh, Mila Jednak, stout captain for Australia, or I don't know if he, I believe he is captain. I think he is, yeah. Does not miss from the spot, ever. Good penalty taker. And he, he ties it up. Of course. Yeah. I don't, really dumb penalty to give away for France, though. Yeah, it's it's idiotic, and this this is the sort of thing that France will do. They're young, they're inexperienced, and at club level, Mtiti doesn't even think of doing that. I don't know why he's doing it on international duty, but uh, it happened. They put it away. But uh, but I think Australia deserved it. They looked much more dangerous than people thought, and and hung with France. They did. Uh, in the end, what was initially ruled uh, Pogba goal and then an Australia own goal, pretty fluky, I would say. But in in the end, on the balance of things, France probably deserved the win, and they they got that goal for it. But but like you said, Australia looked really good. I was especially impressed with the with the midfield, which I thought was going to be solid. Um, Yednak was good as a holding midfielder. Aaron Moy is just every time I see him, I'm, I'm increasingly impressed. He really is a talented midfielder. No, I mean, he. Manchester City had him at one point. I, I think that to catch the eye of a club of Manchester City in this day and age, it, it shows something. And even if he's not with them anymore, I mean, he, he plays for Huddersfield now. He was instrumental in keeping them up. Uh, he's, he's a very, very solid piece for Australia. And if they, if they can get a striker that's going to put stuff away consistently, then they're, they're a much better team than I think anyone realizes because they, they play in Asia. Yeah, I mean, we'll, we'll get to the other Group C game in a minute, but I would say so far this is look like, looking like the, the strongest of any group to me. Yeah, which is a shock because I thought it was going to be one of the softest. Uh, but before that, we have the first Group D game, a 1-1 draw between Argentina and Iceland. Huge result for Iceland to, to steal a point from Argentina. Obviously, the biggest story from the game is Messi's missed penalty, which would have put his team ahead. What, what's your take on this, I guess, criticism of Messi that's coming out after that? I don't care. Messi's good. He'll be back. Anyways, I, I, second managerial gripe of the day. What is Sampoli doing playing five in the back against Iceland, who you know? And they're very public with the fact that we're good at defending. We're going to do it. I, I think Messi is kind of stuck there looking around like, well, where are all my players? They're in the back, and he's got white shirts around him. I mean, he missed a penalty. Whatever. He's not good from the spot. He's missed five of his last ten. But he, he's the kind of guy that can create chances if you even put one more player up there to like make a run. Yeah, I mean, what was most shocking to me maybe is towards the end of the game when Sampaioli did finally put on some more attacking players, they would you know pass it around, and then the, always the end result was just someone – you know, giving a little layoff pass to Messi and saying, here, do something. And I think, you know, we can get to this with other teams with, with you know, sort of individual standout players, but they haven't played like that and have had more success. And I think just Argentina's reliance on Messi, not that he isn't an amazing player, I agree with you, so what, he missed a penalty, he's still incredible, but the way Argentina plays, it, almost in deference to him, just people have been criticizing them for this for a long time, and it seems like they used won't change it no matter what. Yeah, I I think that I mean I think Argentina is not going to be a threat until Messi is done only because 
they don't know how to play without him. And they can't, they don't have a plan B if someone's going to put five players on Messi because even he can't do that every single match. So, like, they don't know what to do. There's managers that are trying to figure out, ooh, how do we help Messi instead of thinking, all right, how do we set up a team that can play? Because then Messi's like, oh, all right, that's how we want to play. Now I can do my little magic and still kind of be in the system. Argentina doesn't know what to do with him. Yeah, I mean, it's a shame that he's almost, in certain ways, a detriment to the national team, not for any fault of his own, but just because of the way his team and you know the, the tactics work around him. And I, I agree with you that I think Argentina will be better off when, when they don't have Messi on the team. And it's a real shame because... It seems like such a waste of, you know, maybe the the best player we're going to get to see in our lifetime. Yeah, they're wasting him, but that's that's their problem. I have no sympathy for Argentinians. I'm Mexican. I'm obligated to hate them. Fair enough. Uh, let's move on to Peru Denmark. A one nil win for Denmark. Not the highest scoring game of the day or the tournament, but definitely an exciting one in my opinion. I thought both teams looked pretty good. Uh, how about you? Yeah, I mean they were good. Peru has looked better. They've gone on a run. Denmark looked better than I expected. But, I mean, I'm again, I'm going to call out. I'm going to say Eriksson and um, Schmeichel. I mean, I know Denmark didn't rely on Eriksson, but he still had the assist, and Schmeichel makes a big save in each half to, to win the game 1-0. But they're both threats. They're better than anyone gave them credit for, and I think they're actually going to give France problems. Yeah, I agree. Um, I think definitely the the individual star power of some of the Denmark players, like Schmeichel especially, who made some big saves, was the difference in that game. But another guy who you know wasn't as big of a star coming in, uh, Yusuf Paulsen, I thought had an excellent game. His hold up play was really good. Obviously, he got the goal, and just his work rate. You know, towards the end of the game, he was still coming back defensively um, and putting pressure on Peruvian players, and he, he was really impressive for me. Yeah, he he was. He I mean, he I think he's kind of used to being the number 2 guy cuz I'm pretty sure he's still with um Red Bull um Leipzig and playing alongside Timo Werner, but he's pacey, he's strong, and he he very much fits the way Denmark is trying to play and I I think he'll be someone to watch further along in this tournament to to maybe be a breakout star. Paulo Guerrero big Peruvian player, probably the most well-known, maybe alongside Jefferson Farfan, didn't get the start, ended up coming on, on as a sub. Do you think that's he's kind of older and he doesn't have the legs to go a full 90 minutes? Why do you think that was? Well, if, if he's not going to have the legs to go a full 90 minutes, I think if he's that type of player, I think you start him and then take him off. I think he'll be able to give you a little more that way, and I think he, he's been around the, the Peru setup long enough that he, he can kind of calm them. And then it looks especially bad since um, Cueva blazes the penalty that they got about three yards over the bar when Guerrero is just going to stick that home, no problem. But I, I think he's strong. He's he's good with hold-up play, and he was instrumental in getting them here, so I don't see why he's not getting a, a chance to, to give all he can. But then again, maybe maybe, uh, maybe Peru thinks that they're better without him. So I, I, I think the jury's still out. Yeah, I, I wouldn't be surprised to see him start their next game, but also if he continues to come on as a sub, that's also definitely possible. About that penalty, so it was given through VAR. Every other VAR call so far I've agreed with. Um, maybe some non-VAR calls could be you know put into question. 
but this particular one, I was initially pretty convinced that it wasn't a penalty. I now still think that it wasn't a penalty, and I'm less sure. But just to me, it looked so inconclusive, even though I've watched the replay, you know, 15 to 20 times by now, that I'm. this is, for me, one case where I think VAR, if they didn't get the call wrong, they at least got it wrong in deciding to review it because it's ambiguous. I, I, I think this is the wiggle room with VAR. If it was so close, um, if it's close enough that people are debating it, that it's not a conclusive. And I, I agree, I'm a little surprised they overturned it. But ultimately, I think they got it right. I think if you're a defender and if you, you leave your leg out even a little bit, a savvy striker is going to go down. I mean, you look at, I'm going way back last year, Suarez against PSG in the Champions League takes a little touch on the shoulder, but Marquinhos is behind him, goes down, gets the penalty. To me, this is something similar. It's a, it's a player that's cutting back. He sees the defender's leg there and he has no obligation to get out of the way. So, you know, why not win a penalty? Yeah, you can come at me and say ball don't lie, and that's fine, but I think the ref got it right. Fair enough. I think, I guess, even beyond the, the whether it was a penalty or not, I do kind of think that they, this is the issue with VAR of when something's ambiguous. I think you should probably stay with the original call, um, and they didn't do that, but it's, it's one out of many instances, so VAR still good so far for me, but we'll, we'll see what happens. Yeah, I, I think one mistake is not... A big deal, but I think if, if this becomes a pattern, if there's very, very close calls that get overturned consistently, then you have to call into question, all right, what's inconclusive? And that becomes the whole football, what is a catch argument almost. So we're, it, it's a step, but it's not perfect yet. Yeah. Uh, but let's move on. Croatia-Nigeria, last game of, of that match day. Not a super exciting game, in my opinion. I thought Croatia didn't look great, and Nigeria also didn't look great. Nigeria especially seemed super one-dimensional. It seemed like they just kept playing it to Victor Moses on the on the wing. And he did all right, but it was just the only method of Nigerian attack that they seemed to be trying consistently, which was sort of boring to watch on one hand, and on the other hand, didn't work at all for them. Yeah, I'm very disappointed with Nigeria. I think they have so many more pieces than than just Victor Moses. Um, I think John Mikel has shown to actually be fairly creative with them, at least more than he has been at club level when he was with Chelsea. I think that he probably should do more to attack. I think that Iwobi has shown flashes that he could be given a greater role, uh, but they, they weren't good they, and they should be. So I think Africa has been a little disappointing and really Nigeria is, is the biggest symptom of that. Cause I, I kind of expect them to do well. Um, and Croatia was fine. They won. There's nothing special. They used their organizational superiority and then scored two set pieces. That's all they needed to do. Um, but uh, looking at all the Group D's games that we've seen, I'd honestly pick Argentina and Iceland to go through. Yeah, I think that's definitely possible. Iceland looked very stout defensively. I think it'll be definitely difficult for Croatia to score against them. One thing tactically for Croatia, later in the game, in the second half, they subbed on Brozovic for um, Kramaric, and so as a midfielder for a striker, they sort of played Brozovic in a defensive mid-role, 
which gave Luka Modric a lot more freedom in midfield and sort of opened up the game for them. I think that makes a ton of sense to start with for Croatia going forward, just because Luka Modric is their best player and, and giving him more freedom, I think is a lot more valuable to Croatia than having a second striker. Yeah, I, I think you have to look at the system that your best player plays in and make sure that they are at their most comfortable because they're going to make the rest of your team better. And Luka Modric plays with Casemiro. So he has someone that sits in front of the back four. Um, and then he has the freedom to dictate the pace and move the ball around. So that's what Croatia should do. And Brozovic gives them that. So I think that's what they should do from the start as well. One last bit of Croatian news. Nikola Kalinic was sent home by the team. Apparently, he was asked to sub on and said he had a back injury and so refused to come on and then was dismissed from the team. I don't really know what the deal is there, but I guess Croatia is down a player. So did they check to see if he, had a, if he actually had an injury or not? From what I've heard, I assume they didn't think they had an injury since they went to sub him on. Okay. But I really don't know. Weird situation. That's kind of a loss. Kalinic is actually very good and I think more clinical than the other backups they have for Mansugic. So that's going to hurt a little bit. I think it will. I mean, I think they're definitely going to go with Mandzukic pretty heavily and then it seems like um, Kramaric is going to be their second striker given that he started the first game. So I guess maybe it seems like Kalinic was third choice for the team. But that's still, I, I agree that, that he offers something different for the team and it's definitely a shame that he got dismissed. But moving on to a 1-0 Serbia win over Costa Rica. I would say, again, not a super exciting game, but Kolarov hit a, hit a pretty nice-looking free kick to give Serbia the win. Overall, I would say Serbia seemed relatively pretty dominant in the game. Costa Rica didn't look great to me. Do you, do you agree with that? Yeah, I agree. I mean, Serbia had the better chances. I think Milinkovic-Savic had two where he was kind of played in behind um, Costa Rica's back line. I think one of them he mishit and um, Navas had an easy save. The other, he went for a bike and actually forced Navas into a very, very good save. But outside of those and the free kick, I think they were wasteful and didn't create that much. But then we didn't expect them to. And that those are the three points that they needed to take to have a chance, and they did it. So they, they can focus on sitting back a little bit more against teams that are going to be better than them in their last two games. So that at the end of the day, this was perfect for Serbia. It's what they needed and they did it. Yeah. I mean, top of their group now, uh, which is definitely helpful going into games against Brazil and Switzerland. Let's, uh, let's go to that Brazil Switzerland game before we get to the game. I'm sure you're very excited to talk about oh, yeah. in Mexico, Germany. Um, but Brazil won, Switzerland won. some controversy from this game in that Switzerland's goal, um, Stefan Zuber seemed to push off of Miranda in order to get up and head in a set-piece goal. Do you think that should have been called a foul? I think it probably should have been called. But I also think that Miranda was just kind of weak. Because it didn't look like a very, very hard push. It, it was a push in the same way that Zuba pushed off for Russia's third goal. In that... Maybe it throws Miranda off balance, but you're a center back. You're supposed to be strong. You gotta you gotta stand up to that. I think more concerning is that Neymar was fouled ten times, and that wasn't really stopped. 
because the Swiss were just able to successfully kill the game and pretty much stop any threat Brazil had. So I, I have more of an issue with those fouls than, you know, maybe a little push on Miranda in the box. So at the end of the day, you're a center back mark in the corner. You've got to be ready to get pushed. Yeah, it definitely seemed to me like Miranda wasn't even going up for the ball. Um, so I, I agree that it probably should have been a foul, but I think you can still criticize Miranda on the play regardless. I mean, I, I agree with, with the, the concern over the fouling of, of Neymar and you know, the Brazil's, Brazil's attacking players. But the, the thing is, it's not like those fouls weren't called all the time. A lot of time they were called, and, and a number of Swiss players were even you know, carded for it and then got subbed off for new players who could foul without risking getting sent off. So it was maybe a disappointing strategy to see a team use, but definitely an effective one, and I wonder if more teams are going to try to do that against Brazil. They might, which is a shame for the fans because Brazil is, I think, the most exciting team in this tournament and showed it in the friendlies. So uh, I guess it happened, and it might happen again, and Brazil's just going to have to find a way around that. Um, Do you think they will find a way? So... I, I think that I think they will in the group stage because I don't particularly think the two teams they're playing left have an attacking threat. So I think they can they can get a goal and then kind of try and find a rhythm even through all the fouling. But I think when they play against a team with a better attack, then that might be a little trouble because I don't know how how well they're going to be able to fight through those, especially if they're getting battered over and over again. All right, let's let's get into the good stuff. I'm sure you're excited. Mexico won, Germany nil. So first little side note, before we even talk about any of the game, the Mexican fans in Mexico City made an earthquake. There was seismic activity due to, and this is a quote, maybe excessive jumping. <laughs> it's incredible. It's incredible. All right, now now the game. What, what do you want to ask me? I'll answer any question. I'm pretty much interviewing me for this. I'm the Mexico expert. We'll get into Mexico. We'll get into Mexico. I want to start with Germany. What were they doing tactically? Because it seemed like as soon as they lost the ball for most of that game, Mexico just had beyond acres of space to work with on the counter. They did. I think, especially if they were, I think they came up the left side a lot. And that's to be expected because Kimmich occasionally plays in midfield for Bayern. Less now, but I think he, he has that ability and he likes to get forward. So I honestly don't think Germany was doing anything different than they normally would. I think they were attacking and Mexico was fast enough to exploit that. I think Germany should have expected it. I think they should have covered for it. I think they should have found a solution. But I don't think it's anything different from what they were they would normally do. I think they're going to come out and play the same way against Sweden and against South Korea, and then in the knockout stages because I still think they're going to get there. Um, so I don't think they're overly concerned. Yeah, I mean, I'm concerned for them at least. I think I agree that you know they they were it was sort of their normal style in a lot of ways, but I feel like you've got to prepare for for the counter, and it just seemed like. I don't know that maybe besides Kadir and Cruz not providing enough cover for that counter, you can really fault any individual players because they were playing within that system. But it seems like they need to figure out something to prevent just teams 
darting down the field when it's only Boateng and Hummels there to stop them. Yeah, I, my assumption is that that was supposed to be Kadira's job because that's not Cruz's game. He doesn't cover um, the center backs. So I, either Germany has to find another midfielder to sit there and protect on that counter because I think now the teams have seen Mexico do it, more are going to do it. But otherwise, I really don't know what their solution is. I haven't, I haven't looked into the squad enough. I don't know which midfielder you'd really put there over Kadira because the advantage of Kadira is that he's mobile and really was the only midfielder on the field that was mobile for Germany. Yeah, I mean, you've got someone like Gundogan, but and he, he definitely is mobile, I would say, but I don't know that he's the guy you want covering at the back because he, he is, again, more of an attacking player who can, can help you, you know, create chances. So I'm, I'm, again, not really sure who else they could play in midfield. I don't know that they have all that many, you know, defensive midfielders that would, that would be good enough to, to fit in that squad. So that's definitely a concern. I do agree that they'll probably get out of the group stages at least, even if they don't fix that problem, but it's something they've got to address for sure. Yeah. Um, I'm looking through the squad. I really can't pick anybody out. Uh, unless um, Yogi Love tr- basically transforms a center back to yeah, play there. Matthias Ginter I, I, is the one person who I think you could do that with, but I'm not sure how well that would work. Yeah, I I think that's a hole that no one saw before this match, but I think was exposed. Definitely. But uh, how about Mexico? Pretty amazing performance from them, both you know working on the counter, getting some good offense going, but then also defending against a really aggressive German attack for the whole game without conceding. What do you think worked for them the most? I think the work rate was... Outstanding. I'm a little surprised that uh, Miguel Layun was played essentially as a right winger, but at the end of the day, it worked. I think the midfield was was very much set. They clogged up the spaces where um, the German attacking midfielders, Draxler, Ozil, even Muller, like to work. They they had someone pretty much track Cruz at all times. Don't give him space. They used their pace to exploit the counter. Um, but I think my man of the match, honestly, would probably be Chicharito up front. His hold-up play was great. He provided an outlet. He won some vital free kicks when they were sat back defending to to waste a little time and help the team catch their breath. So I, I was impressed with everyone. Yeah, I, I agree. I and mean, they, they look really good, and they're now in very good position to not only advance, which people expected of them, but but to win the group with you know Germany. At you know three points down after one game. Yeah, this was these were three points. Oh, well, really two points they didn't expect to get. I think one point would have been realistic. Zero points would have been more likely. So they're they're in a good spot. And all of a sudden, Rafa Marquez looks like he can contribute as well. I wasn't ready for thirty nine year old man to come into the midfield and and actually look good, but he did. So I think that's another option that I didn't realize they would have. So they, they look really good, and they might actually make the quarters for the first time in seven World Cups. We can hope, certainly. Um, but we'll, we'll see. Uh, the other game in that group, uh, 1-0 Sweden win over South Korea. I thought both of these ga- teams looked pretty evenly matched. I would say maybe besides, I, maybe of any game, these are the two teams that I thought you know really went toe-for-toe, and it didn't seem like one team 
really dominated the other in, in any facet of the game. Uh, in the end, uh, VAR penalty given correctly uh, gave Sweden a penalty, which was converted, and Sweden ended up with the win. But I think it, that was a game that really could have gone either way. Yeah, it was. I I think that the one issue with South Korea is, and I think we touched on it last time, the, it's, it's son or bust. And today it was a bust. They didn't create many chances. And Sweden was able to, you know, soak up pressure, take some chances of their own. They got the penalty. It was put away very, very calmly to get the three points that they needed to have a chance as well. So I, it's good for Sweden. And they have a game plan, which is, is more than I can say for some of the other teams. Yeah, I mean, they. it seemed like Sweden sort of man-marked man Son out of the game and South Korea sort of man-marked Emil Forsberg out of the game. Now that those two, two players really contributed all that much, but in the end, like you said, uh, the, there was the penalty. Sweden was uh, maybe a bit more organized, a bit more compact defensively, and that allowed them to get the win. Yeah, I, and, and uh, I would even say Sweden was somewhat wasteful. They had a couple chances that where the South Korean keeper made good saves. Um, but yeah. No one really dominated. 1-0 was the right result. Could have gone either way. Yeah, agreed. Uh, moving on, uh, Belgium got a nice 3-0 win over Panama. But, I mean, people are really praising Belgium after this game. My concerns for the team really haven't changed all that much. You know, I, I expect them to, you know, they play a very offensive style. I expect them to be able to break down, you know, less talented teams that sit back like Panama did because of all the creative talent they had, they have, but like their, the defensive concerns with the team, you know, the consistency concerns with the team are, you know, just as strong for me as, as they have been. Yeah. It's better than they did last world cup. And I think that's what people are comparing it to because international teams play so sparingly and UEFA qualifiers are, are kind of hard to see. But in the last World Cup, they didn't have a winner that came before the 70th minute or whatever it was. So I think when Merton scores his volley, which was a good goal, I, I think we're less impressed because of what we saw Nacho do. But it was a good goal. Um, but I, I think Belgium was able to exhale. And after that, they looked more dangerous going forward, but also more open at the back. So I, I think I agree with you and that this doesn't change much and that them beating Panama doesn't tell us anything except that, hey, they can do what they're supposed to do this time. Yeah, I mean, I think when, you know, you're most, the, the, on the opposite team, when the most attacking, the most threatening attacking player is, you know, a 37-year-old or however old he is, Blas Perez, you can push up more without that much risk. It's not like he's going to beat you for pace on the counter or anything like that. And so... I don't know, maybe they will play a little bit more defensively against better teams, against you know England in their group. But if they play like this, I'm definitely you know, concerned that they can't keep up you know, what they did against a not very good team in Panama. Yeah. I, so, yeah, again, Jerry's still out on Belgium. Panama looked better than I thought, though. They, they had a couple more chances than I thought. And, and it's nice. They're a World Cup debutante. And they don't care how the results go. They're here. This is a success. Yeah, I mean, all the all the Panama fans were were you know celebrating even after they were losing. So I mean, that was definitely a, they were a fun team. Um, just in you know their excitement for being in the World Cup at all, and you know despite the fact that they're in at the expense of the U.S., I definitely feel happy for them and enjoy 
seeing them celebrate. Yeah, it's a wonderful story. Um, but, but before we move on, I do want to say the Drives Merton's goal, very nice. Not as nice as Kevin De Bruyne's beautiful outside of the foot assist to Romelu Lukaku for Belgium's second goal. That was assist of the tournament so far for me. Definitely. I was having breakfast. I think I stood up out of my chair. That was so good. I was like, oh, look at that. So, yeah, but not much more to say. It was great. Uh, moving on, final game we have to talk about. Um, an England 2-1 win over Tunisia. I thought England looked good, but sort of had that, So we're so used to it now, England, just what's going on? How are you not performing better? Uh, an early Harry Kane goal and a late Harry Kane winner were necessary to, to stave off a Tunisia penalty and get that win. But definitely, despite the team looking good, for the most part, definitely some concerns there. Yeah, I mean, well, for one, just touching on the Tunisia penalty, A, there have been a lot of penalties in this World Cup already, and I've been shocked. Two, Kyle Walker could have seen red. England could have been a man down. It's elbow to the face, and I think the ref was lenient, and rightly so. But another ref, he's gone. Yeah, I mean, I don't know what he was thinking there. There was no reason to commit a foul. I think that Tunisia player was the only player in the box at the time. Balls, yeah, balls I mean, past them. That really made no sense to me. I was just so confused when that happened. I was like, why are you doing this, Kyle Walker? I also don't know that he should have even been playing as one of the back three for England. Um, that seemed like an odd decision. Gareth Southgate, just his his substitutions, his lineup in the first place, seemed very suspect to me. Yeah, so there, there's my third personnel gripe of the tournament. What is Gareth Southgate, Southgate doing? Like, oh... You have Trent Alexander-Arnold on, who's probably better attacking than Kieran Trippier. So why is Trippier playing wing back? Secondly, why is Kyle Walker even center back when you have Gary Cahill still on your bench? And if you insist on playing Harry Maguire, fine. Dyer didn't see the field. till the end of the game. That's true. He came out at the end, but like he, he didn't really contribute. And then the subs, when you're at 1-1 and you need a goal... He took off Raheem Sterling and Deli Alley, who together for their clubs came up with 40 goals and 29 assists. So it's 69 goals directly. It's a good record. And he brought on Rashford. And like Rashford is, is okay. I mean, you bring him on in search of a goal. You don't take off Sterling for him, but like he, he scored enough. He provided a lot. And Ruben Loftus Cheek, who I think Loftus Cheek. Of the 18 goals and 12 assists those two had put together, I think Loftus Cheek had two and four. So why he came on when you need to score because a point against Tunisia is unacceptable, I don't get it. They were lucky that Harry Kane managed to score on two rebounds and they won. So like Southgate is going to come out of this without people really calling him out. But what is he doing? Why is he still in the manager? England have not had a solid manager in God knows how long because there was a disaster with Capello in 2010 like Hodgson wasn't much better I mean like you just look at Euro 2016 Harry Kane taking corners do you see how good (laughs) he was and now Gareth Southgate who I think was the caretaker manager after they fired Allardyce or whatever it was fired Allardyce after like two days and he's not good in my opinion I mean I think playing five in the back with England is already an issue because you already struggled to score, but okay, whatever. That's my rant. No, I agree. I think 
hopefully they figure that out. And South Korea has weirdly been getting a lot of praise from the media leading up to this World Cup, I guess just because of how, how well England have done in qualifiers. But they always do well in qualifiers and then bad tournaments. I don't know why people don't learn from that. But, yeah, I mean, we'll definitely see if, if England's lineups and substitutions are better. And, I mean, they didn't play terribly, but they're certainly going to have to be better against better opposition. Yeah. I, they have to take their chances, what they need to do. They need to score. They didn't create much. They didn't score much. Oh, well. I mean, credit to Kane, getting two goals, um, two important goals. And I think that, that that's what it'll do for you. That's what you expect them to do. Yeah. But certainly need to be better. But that takes us to the end of our, our recast for this episode. Uh, we're just going to preview a few games before... Our next episode, when we'll talk about the results, uh, the first one I want to talk about, I mentioned it uh, at the beginning of the episode, we were talking about the Group A games, but Russia-Egypt coming up, Egypt coming off their loss, Russia coming off their 5-0 win over Saudi Arabia. Like I said, I think this is the most important game in Group A. I think whoever comes away with the result, and I think the draw kind of puts the, the ball in, in Russia's court, is, is definitely looking good. Do you think this is a must-win for Egypt, or can they get away with a draw? It's a must-win simply because Russia put five past Saudi Arabia. Because it's always going to be tough if you're in that last group game and you're kind of scoreboard watching and trying to figure out, all right, how many goals do we need to score? Um, Especially because Russia scored so many. Because Russia probably, if they get a draw, they're going to sit back and say, all right, if we don't concede too much, we'll still go through. So I think Egypt needs to win to put a little more pressure on Russia. And I think for a little confidence themselves. I, I think they're a little demoralized because Salah wasn't able to play. They they scored or they lost on a late late header. So I think both for mentality and because of the goal difference, Egypt needs this win. Yeah, I agree. Especially because of the, the goal difference, like you said. And just I, they will have Salah back. I think that'll help. But on the other hand, for Russia. You know, I think both of us would say that you know a five 0 win over Saudi Arabia doesn't mean all that much because it's over Saudi Arabia. But if if Russia has a good game against Egypt, if if they get a convincing win in that game, are they for real as a team that can, you know, if they get that win, they'll almost definitely advance. But are they for real if they have a convincing win against Egypt for maybe even going further than that? If it's convincing, yes. But it has to be convincing in that they have to definitely outplay them. They can't just like kind of sit back on the counter and and score and just kind of get lucky and see Egypt and miss a bunch of chances. Cause like th- there's there's convincing three nils and there's three nils where you're like, oh, the other team was unlucky. There are not many of them, but they exist. So that that's that's my caveat. Yeah, that that's fair. I think. Let's move on to. Some Group C games, uh, again, like I said, I think this is shaping up to be maybe the, the most you know, talented group top to bottom. And the, the, the second round of matches, we've got Denmark-Australia and France-Peru. Denmark and France can lock up their spots advancing. Uh, if they both get wins, do you think that'll end up happening? I think, actually, it will. I think France kind of got the wake-up call they needed against Australia. I think they realized they're going to need to play better. And I think they will play better. And I think that Denmark has enough. And, and again, I think the two, their star power is going to you know, give them that little extra boost they need. So I think they will lock up their spots. But it's, 
I mean, you saw how long it took me to answer that. So I think they will, but I think it's going to be close. Yeah, I definitely wouldn't be surprised if Australia is able to get a point in a game with Denmark. Um, I think they looked a little better to me than Peru did. And, you know, Denmark-Peru was a, a fairly close game, although Denmark, you know, deservingly got the win. So, I mean, I think these will be some both pretty good games to watch. Maybe Peru will be a little more defensive against France than they were, than they were against Denmark, but still looking forward to seeing them play again. And then, finally, a game to look at. One that I think could be pretty good is Argentina-Croatia. Both teams with some, you know, issues, but also some really talented players. And I think they almost balance each other out in the sense that Argentina's got a lot of really good attacking players, but is maybe a little weaker in midfield and defensively, whereas Croatia is a little more stout defensively and, and has a more talented midfield. So I'm, I'm really curious to see how that game plays out. I agree. I, it's going to be more open. For Argentina, they're not playing Iceland. Messi's going to receive the ball in a little more space and actually start to run at defenders. So I'm excited to see what Argentina is able to do in an open game. And if Sampaoli changes from playing five in the back, um, because I think that definitely hampered what um, they were able to do. For Croatia, uh, we're going to see if they can, you know, nick a goal, make it tough for Messi put enough players on him and, and maybe sneak a result and really put Argentina in trouble. Yeah, I mean, I would say Argentina probably go into this game as the favorites, but I wouldn't be surprised if it went the other way. I think it's definitely possible for Croatia to pull off a win here. Yeah, uh, for sure. But yeah, uh, that's all we've got to talk about this episode. We will have a fresh batch of games to talk about in a few days on the next episode. But uh, in the meantime... Enjoy the World Cup. It's been pretty amazing so far, and I'm sure it will continue to be, and we'll, we'll see you in a bit.